don't know if you guys heard about this recently. Um, there was an award, really unusual award, for Scarecrow in, in uh, San Diego. And uh, this just like amazing kind of award there. He was outstanding in his field. And I don't know if you guys heard. What, you didn't like that joke? I never start with a joke. I know what you're saying. Keep your day job, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> all right, all right. I just thought it was kind of funny. You know? Um, we're going to talk about ambition today. We're going to talk about ambition. I want to uh, talk about a guy who was super ambitious. You know, ambition can run both ways. It can be like great ambition, and all of us should have it. Ambition is actually a good thing. It means we want to uh, realize our dreams. We want to succeed. We want to get to the top. We want to do our best. All of those things are what ambition should be. But then there's the, there's the dark side of ambition, and we all know about that. Uh, and so... Back in the 1970s, when I was in college, yes, I'm that old, there was a scandal that hit our country called Watergate. How many of you remember Watergate? A lot of you weren't even alive during Watergate. But uh, during that time, all the, you know, so President Nixon has this scandal, and all these people that were a part of that, one of the guys' names was uh, Charles Colson. Let me just say, read a couple things about Charles Colson. Charles Colson was a self-made man. As a student, he arrogantly turned down a scholarship to Harvard. And he joined the Marines, and he set up his own law firm, and he entered politics. And by the age of 40, he had become one of President Nixon's closest advisors. Later, he described himself as a young, ambitious, political kingmaker. He was known as Nixon's hatchet man. And um, I'm going to tell you a little bit more of that story later on, but it, it, it was one of those stories that only that 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 gripped our country and and where we looked at Nixon and we looked at the people that were a part of that administration and and we saw ambition just run amok go 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 dark and 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 so we're going to address the whole question of of ambition inside of us we all should be ambitious in a certain way but the question is this are my ambitions self-centered or are they God-centered and so God changes everything you know when we come into a relationship with Jesus um he begins to direct those ambitions in a completely different way so that they're not, it's not just all about us. And we're going to see this today through a story. We've been doing a, a series called Tale of Three Kings. Uh, and so last week, if you were with us, we talked about the first of those three kings. His name was Saul. Saul uh, started great. He was the, uh, Israel's first king. And then things went horribly wrong. And if you were with us last week, we talked about the fact that at the end of his life, he was chasing down. Uh, the next king, who would be his son-in-law, David, and his life ended horribly, and it was just super, super messy. So here is a guy who started out with great ambition, great, great desires, great dreams, and it all went wrong. So today, we're going to talk about the next king. Actually, he would be king just for a, for a minute, really, uh, and that would be the son of David, and David's son would be Absalom, um, so before we jump in, and if you have your Bibles, go to 2 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, let me kind of set the story up a little bit so that when we jump in, we have a greater sense of actually what's, what's going on. So uh, Absalom is actually the third son of David. You know how many sons David had? David had 21 sons. And uh, so he was a busy guy. He, he had several wives. He had concubines. It was really never God's intention for him to be that way, but that's, that's just the way he was. And if you think, like, you ever feel like you look at your family and you go, man, my family is, you know, dysfunctional or whatever, all you have to do is read about his family and you will feel better about your family. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about his family. Um, his, 
his uh, oldest son, Amnon, uh, raped his sister, Tamar. She's the only one of the girls that's actually mentioned of, of, of David's daughters. So she's raped by her brother. And at some point, Absalom, who's furious about this, decides to, he's going to murder his brother. So he, two years later, he murders his brother, Amnon. And so you've got rape, and you've already got murder. And then so David, and this is the interesting thing about David. And, you know, sometimes the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. But then you look at his checkered past, and you're like, huh. But David was a guy who always came back to God. But in this case, when his daughter was raped by the son, the Bible says he did nothing. And then when his son, Absalom, killed his other son, Amnon, the Bible said he did nothing. It was almost like he was sort of paralyzed. So he's got all these children, and he's not exactly father of the year. And, and, and so this is, we're going to pick up the story. So what happens is after Absalom murders his brother, David simply sends him away. So he sends him to Syria, in the little city over there, and he's gone for a few years. And then through a big story, you need to read the story, he, he brings him back to Jerusalem where he is, and, you know, they hug and they kiss and everything is okay again. So Absalom, and so here's what you also need to know about Absalom. I, I love the way the Bible describes things in, in probably a different way than we would ever describe things today. It says, Absalom was the most handsome man in the land. And it talks about his hair. And every time that I read about his hair, I just get hair in me because I don't have very much of it. But it says that his hair was so thick that every year they would, they would have a yearly cutting of his hair. And it weighed like a lot. And so I you know, visualize this incredibly handsome guy with all this hair. And he is the king's son. And we'll pick it up in uh, chapter 15, verse 1. It said, In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot horses with 50 men to run ahead of him. So this gives you a sense of who he is already. It's like, okay, I'm back in with my dad. My dad is the king. I need to make a statement here. And so he's, got, he's you know, going through town with a chariot, 50 people, 50 guys, chosen guys that are running with him. So you kind of get a sense of who he is. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. And whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what, what town are you from? And he would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, and that everyone who had a complaint or a case would come to me, and I would see that they received justice. Can you kind of see where he's going with this? So in, in, in biblical times, ancient times, the king was not only the political leader of the land, but he was also kind of a one-person supreme court. And so many times the king would stand by the gate, and people would come with their complaints. But in this case, uh, David is missing in action, and so in steps his son Absalom. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, kiss him. And this is a um, Middle Eastern custom that there even is observed today. And Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. Now catch this part. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, uh, let, let me go to Hebron to fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. And while your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in, in Hebron. 
Doesn't that sound spiritual? He comes to dad and he goes, dad, I, it's kind of like, dad, I'm going to go back to church and I'm, I'm going to go do this sacrifice. And it just sounds so holy. And, and yet he's doing something that is just completely so not of God. He's plotting. He's, he, he's actually ramping up towards trying to take his own dad's kingdom. And he's doing it under the guise of spirituality. Not that any of us have ever done that, right? We, we would never use God as an excuse to get what we want. I'll just leave that there. <laughs> then the king said to him, go in peace. And so he went to Hebron. And then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king of Hebron. 200 men. I'll just, I'll just stop there, actually. I'll leave it right there. So why this story? This is a story of a man who would be king, who could be king, if he would just wait his turn. Okay? It's because he really was in line, most likely, it seemed to be, he seemed to be his dad's most favored son to become the king. But he got ahead of himself. That's what ambition can do to us. And so he begins by serving, right? Like, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about, like, what does it look like when ambition begins to sort of move in the wrong, wrong direction? In this particular, particular case, he begins to do it through serving other people. And it all looks good, right? Like, oh, you know, he's at the city gate. Oh, let me hear your complaint. Oh, I'll help you. I'll, I'll serve you. But really, it's, it, it's not serving you, it's self-serving. He's, there's, he's got a different intention in this. It's something that we need to be careful of. If only I were appointed judge in the land. Listen to his words there. Then everyone come to me and I would see that they, they, they get justice. And so suddenly we, we see that it's, it's, it's really not about serving others. There's a goal behind it. He's using service to get somewhere. And then we begin convincing other people. Um, and in this particular case, it says he literally, he stole the hearts of the people. Well, how did he do it? You know, it, he's listening sympathetically, I guess, to everybody. And they're going, you know, I, I wish your dad was here. You know, I remember he, he was a great king. And, and, and by the way, at this particular time in the kingdom, David's getting older. And his, his bright, shining star is kind of fading because there's been, the kingdom has been scandalized by his affair with Bathsheba with a murder plot, with a cover-up and a lot of things. So his, his star is not shining quite so brightly. And what we see in, in his son, Absalom, is a guy who's an opportunist who, who thinks, I know I could be king, I would be king, but I don't want to wait anymore. And so he begins to connive his way. Uh, and he begins to convince other people. Now, how, how, does, how does this apply to us in our ambitions? Well, a lot of times, if you're in a corporation or if you're in some some uh, place where you work or there's, there's a ladder to climb or whatever it is, a lot of times we can begin to sort of be like a little bit, like, a little bit like Absalom. Like, well, you know, if, if I were the king, you know, if, if I were, you know, like uh, where our boss is, have you noticed incompetent he is or she is, you know, that kind of thing. And then it just, the plot begins to thicken. And we actually, we become a lightning rod for complaints and gossip. And I just want to say, if you ever become that person that everybody is coming to to complain about the boss or the person who's leading the persons on top, that's going to be a bad day for you. And if you're doing that, I have one word for you. Stop. Just stop it. Because here's, here's what's going to happen to you. I'm going to speak prophetically to you, okay? 
Because you're someplace and you're thinking you're doing everybody a favor. They go, no, no, you understand, they're not that good. If I were the king, if I were the boss, if I were the CEO, if I were the leader, it, it, would, it would just, everything would, would be better. But because you are that person that everybody parks at your office or wherever you are and they're complaining to you and you're entertaining it, you're just bringing it in. You're just like, yeah, I agree, yeah. They're just not that good. You know, they're kind of incompetent, you know. They, they have no patience. They were good one day. There was a time they were good, but you know, they're losing their way. They're getting older, you know, all the things that people will say. And then one day, if you will become king, if you will become the CEO, if you will become the leader, you will have established a culture that is toxic. And they will mow you down and shoot you so fast. And it'll be the worst day of your life because you were that person. You don't ever want to go there. When I was uh, very, very young in ministry, so I want you to know, whenever I say ministry, just know this, everybody's, every Christ follower is called to ministry, right across the board. We're all called to ministry. But I was called into what we call vocational ministry. So there was a very specific calling on my life to be a pastor. So um, when I had pa- was pastoring and I was you know, a youth pastor and, and I, was, uh, I served different capacities in a, in a church, um, I was given this book, and I'm still pretty young, it's called A Tale of Three Kings. We named our series after it. And it's about the three kings we're talking about. It's about David, Absalom, and Saul. And so I thought it was interesting. I was probably about 27 years old and uh, you know, kind of well on my way in ministry. And this guy hands me this book and he goes, Steve, you need to read this book. And I love reading books. So I'm like, oh, this is great. And I read the book and I was immediately offended. Because <laughs> I realized that I was, could be, I wasn't quite there yet, but I could be well, like one of the characters in the book and the character's name was Absalom. And that the reason that he gave me this book is he realized that young in ministry, see, and, and I've been in this situation many times where I'm in a church and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the, the, the second guy and the pastor, in a couple of cases, the pastor that I was with, kind of his star was fading, and he was kind of in the twilight of his career and sort of fading out. And so here's what happened is people would come to me and they'd go, because I was so, you know, I was young and I was that up and rising guy, they'd say, oh, you're such a great speaker. You're so relevant. You know, pastor, he's kind of losing his way, you know, and, and, and you're just, you're in touch with the culture, and the pastor is like, he's kind of in touch with the culture. And they, I, I was becoming that guy, and it was, I could hear what people were saying, it, it you know, it, it felt good on the ego, right? I'm like, I'm listening to this. I'm young. I'm like, oh, God, thank you. And then at some point, after having read this book, I went, no, I will never, ever be an Absalom. I'm not going to be that guy. I, I can't even remember who gave me the book, but I thank whoever it was all those years ago because it stopped me from running with a vicious kind of ambition but not only hurt me, but probably hurt a lot of other people in my life. Don't, don't, be that, don't be that person. And then we start acting covertly. Uh, then Absalom had these secret messengers go out. And, you know, and, and by the time we get to this stage, if, if, our, if our ambition is beginning to go dark, we're not, sometimes not even aware of it. We think that, no, no, you don't understand. I'm saving the organization. They need me. And so I have to go, you know, I have to go a little underground, under the radar. But it's going to be okay because I will be the person who saves everything. But, but, but we're doing it all in, in the wrong way. And then we assume greater authority than we've been given. Look at, now it's, it's come to this. He goes, well, as soon as you hear the sounds of the trumpet, say, Absalom is king of Hebron. And even the people that are with him, we'll read about it in a second, they're like, what? We didn't realize it was going that far. There's a, there's a book that I uh, read. In fact, I, I brought it with me. I like to recommend books once in a while. It's called How to Lead When You're Not in Charge. 
you know, a lot of times I think we're under the assumption, the belief, that if we're ever going to do anything in our life, we have to have the title. We have to be the leader. Like, okay, and, and sometimes we do nothing. In fact, we can work for a, an organization or a company or a corporation, whatever it is, and we can say, well, when it's my turn, then I'll make these changes, then uh, you know, I'll make this a dynamic environment, and, and it'll be wonderful. But in the meantime, we can just kind of sit on our hands a little bit and go, but you know, when, when my turn comes. One of the things we discover, like whoever you work for, what, even as a family member, are you making it better? That's one of the values of Newbreak. Are you making it better? You always should. And you don't have to have the title to make it better. See, Absalom could have been that way. He could have said, one day I will be king. When it's my turn, you know, when my dad passes, I will be king. In the meantime, I'm going to make everything better. That would have been the way to go, but he's not doing that. He wants it now. And that's when ambition begins to go dark. And then we begin to blur the moral and ethical lines just to justify our actions. Let's get, let's get back to the story, verse, verses 11 and 12. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. And they had been invited as guests, and they went quite innocently. Just think about that. They're being invited. Now, these are very prominent men, undoubtedly. They're the movers and shakers. Knowing nothing about the matter. So they've been invited. They're like, oh, the king's son has invited us. He's the rising star. That's great. Oh, let's go. How, oh, how cool we got invited to this party. And while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent to Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, to come from Gila, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's followers kept on increasing. So the plot thickens, and there's people involved, and the people that are involved don't even realize what's going on. They just think they're the honored guest at this party. But little do they realize they're a part of a conspiracy, a coup. You know, what happens when we get too ambitious is if people, we say it this way, people get caught in the splash zone of our ambition. Years and years ago when my kids were small, we had year-round pastors over to SeaWorld. And uh, the, back in the day, you know, the... Uh, the killer whale, the Shamu, would do her tricks. And one of them was that uh, the trainers would have her go around the pool real fast a couple times and then leap up in the air and come back down on the back. And there was a splash zone. They had it all marked out. Any, any, do any of you remember that? You're, yeah, I can kind of remember that. And, and so um, if you were in the splash zone, you were going to get soaked. And some people wanted to be in the splash zone, and it was kind of fun to watch it. I was not one of those people. But anyway, there was a splash zone. But, but I, I like the metaphor because it really works for what we're talking about this morning, that, that there is a splash zone of sin, that if you and I get ahead of ourselves and we get overly ambitious and our ambition begins to go dark the wrong direction, what happens is that people get caught in the middle of that. And, and the way that it works is if we're overly ambitious, let's just say we're the leader of our family, of our household, um, we begin to work long hours and the family begins to suffer. And we begin to make sacrifices and it seems like they're, really, they're all about, well, it's all for the family and it's all for the people that I love. And pretty soon you begin to find that people just become speed bumps in your life and you're so ambitious and it just gets away from you. And the very thing that you wanted to accomplish, which was a lofty, beautiful goal, suddenly becomes something that's very ugly and dark. But, but you become blind to it. That's why we call it blind ambition. You can no longer see it because now you're on a mission. And I've got to get there. I'm so close. 
And yeah, if a few people get dinged up along the way, well, that's just the way it is. How did it ever become that? How did ambition ever become so ugly in our life? What happens, you know, when I talk about blurring those ethical lines, especially if, if, uh, if, you're, if you're getting there and you just feel like you have to get there sooner than later, you will begin to abandon the truth that you know. See, one of the things that I'm so, so glad about in my own life, not only that I came to be a Christ follower early in my life, but that I established this foundation of life of what is wrong and what is right according to God's word. So check this out. Um, a lot of you have read some of the Barna research stuff, but according to a Barna study, 66% of adults and 91% of teenagers don't believe in absolute truth anymore. Oxford Dictionary has declared post-truth as its 2016 International Word of the Year. So what that means is that when, you know, we see these t-shirts, you know, live in my truth, and you've got your truth, and I've got my truth, but what happens in a world where everybody's got their own truth, and there's not an agreed absolute truth of some kind? Remember Jesus said, I am the truth. He said, and if you know the truth, the truth will do what? Set you free, right? But when people begin to get too ambitious, the first thing that goes is truth. We just begin to crash right through like what's right and what's wrong. And we kind of make up our own truth and we go, well, you know, for the sake of my family, the organization, whatever, we just, we just crash right through that. It, it's really an interesting time that we live in when more and more truth is abandoned and nobody can really agree on what, what truth is. That's why I love the word of God. That's why it's, I think it's the one truth we can all agree on. Jesus said, I'm the truth. And there's that foundation of truth in the Bible that'll, that'll keep us balanced. So, we talked about the, the dark side. How, how do I have a godly ambition? How, how do I keep it godly if you were a follower of God? We have to, we have to daily, and I, do, and I mean daily, I mean like every day that we get up. Daily, we have to submit our ambition to God. I am so glad for a lot of reasons that when I was young I became a, a Christ follower because I can tell you for a certainty, 100%, that if I had not become a Christ follower earlier in my life, that my ambitions would have quickly gone dark. I would have crashed my marriage. I know that for sure. I would, I would have crashed my family. Uh, I would, people would have just become obstacles in my way because I know me, I know how I'm wired. I'm super competitive. I want what I want. But you know what tempers that? Jesus. Jesus tempers that. Jesus changes that in my life. And so I want you to show you the, the, the Jesus way. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. You know, have you ever asked yourself the question, how did Jesus deal with ambition? And was Jesus ambitious? Well, let me put it out there. Jesus wanted to save the entire world. Is that ambitious? I don't think it gets any bigger than that. So he's, he's yeah. So as we get into chapter 4 here, um, Jesus is just getting ready to start his ministry. He's just been baptized by his cousin John the Baptist. And he comes out, and as soon as he, he comes out of the water... Before he steps into his full ministry and his mission to literally save the world, he's going to be tested. 
his motives will be purified. And, and so he goes into the wilderness for 40 days, and he doesn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. And so this is where we're going we're gonna to pick up the story. First two verses. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I think that's a little bit of an understatement. I think he was starving to death. So he's powered up spiritually, but he's kind of vulnerable because he's, he's very weak from not, not eating. So what is, what is he going to show us here? The first thing that he's going to show us is that we have to refuse to take shortcuts. How many of you know there's always going to be a shortcut? You want to get to the top. You want to be the lead. You want to be the boss. You want to be the CEO. You want to be like that, that position you've been gunning for a long time. And it's somewhere along the line, you're going to see, I go, oh, there's an easier way to get there. There's a shortcut. And you're going to be very, very tempted to take your shortcut. And so what does Jesus do? Well, let's look at it. Verses 3 and 4. The tempter comes to him and he said, if you are the son of God. Now, notice, first of all, where does the devil tempt him? Where does he really hit him right here? with the whole identity thing. He didn't say, you are the son of God. He says, if, maybe, you are who you say you are. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, that would have been really tempting. I mean, this is Jesus. He has the power to change these stones into bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, Satan, I'm not going to do a cheap trick for you. I'm not going to take a little shortcut here and put on a little magic show for you to try to, uh, you know, show you that I am the Son of God. I don't have to show you anything. I've got a path. I've got a mission. And I'm going to stay true to it. No shortcuts for me. And then we have to refuse the allure of the three Ps, power and possessions and prestige. All of us are subjected, are subject to, to wanting that in our life so look what happens next verses five through seven then the devil took him to the city the holy city and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple notice what he says he said if you are the son of god he's just digging at him he said throw yourself down for it is written he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone kind of interesting here did you know the devil can quote scripture real good he knows it better than we do, but he twisted here actually a little bit. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. See, here's another way that Jesus could have shortcutted his way right to his mission. Suppose that he had said, okay, let's do it. And he jumps and it's hundreds and hundreds of feet. And on his way down, the angels do what they're going to do. And he comes down and he does it in full sight of hundreds, maybe thousands of people. And then it's easy when he says, I am the Son of God, the Messiah. But he goes, yeah, we know. We absolutely know. That was amazing. We saw the angels. We, ah. But Jesus goes, we're not going to go that route. That's not the path the Father has for me. That's not a part of my mission. And then we refuse to build our own kingdom. This is a tough one right here. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He says, all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now, just think about this. Jesus knows what's ahead of him. He knows it's not going to be easy. He knows he's going to be on a circuit traveling with people that are, for the most part, pretty impoverished. 
He's going to really not even have his own home. He's just going to go from place to place. He's going to be with people that are going to make his life a struggle. He's going to face rejection. And then one day, he's going to face the cross. But in this moment, the devil is going, you don't have to do that. I can give it to you all right now. Everything you've ever wanted. No pain, no suffering. Not right, right now. And all you have to do, and, and he, I'm sure he goes, I won't tell anybody. Just worship me. Just, just, you know, 30 seconds of worship. We're there. I'll give it to you all. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and you shall serve him only. It's so easy in our ambitions to get caught up with worshiping the money and worshiping the prestige and chasing stuff and losing ourselves and beginning to build our own kingdom. Dude, it always starts off pretty good for the most part. Oh, I'm doing this for the right, person, right, right reasons. And then the next thing we know, the kingdom's beginning to get a little bit bigger and like we're starting to feel our, our oats and we're like, oh, I'm feeling pretty good about myself and people are saying really nice things about me and they're singing my praises. And you begin to build, instead of God's kingdom, we begin to build our own kingdom. I love verse 11. And then the devil left him. And then the devil left him. And the angels came and they attended him. Why did the devil leave? His brother would say it one day, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. But you've got to hang in there. And you've got to resist. Well, how do we protect our lives? And we're almost done here. How do we protect our lives and our legacy from having it remembered as an asterisk or a footnote? Let me go back to my good friend, Charles Coulson. Remember him? We started off talking about Charles. Let's talk a little about what happens next. He pleaded guilty to his part in the Watergate cover-up scandal, and he was sent to prison. Some of you know this story. By then, he had encountered Jesus. And when he left the court after hearing the sentence, he said, what happened in court today was the court's will and the Lord's will. I've committed my life to Jesus Christ, and I can work for him in prison as well as out. Colson did just that. After his release, he set a prison fellowship and has since been directly or indirectly responsible for leading thousands and thousands of people to Christ. I once heard him say, I was ambitious, and I am ambitious today. But I hope it is not for Chuck Colson, although I struggle quite a lot as a matter of fact. He said, but I am ambitious for Christ. He died in 2012, but he left a legacy and he left more than a footnote. And here's the beautiful thing about this. Maybe so far, if you were to look at your legacy today, it wouldn't be a pretty one. But you can always change that. This is where grace comes in. This is where you say, yeah, I've, I've kind of screwed things up, and I, I've, done, I've taken some shortcuts, and you know, I, I, I've been really inconsiderate to some people. Maybe I've just been terrible to some people. But I was ambitious, and I, I wanted to get there, and I didn't do it the right way, and I'm feeling shame today as I sit here. You can change that. I just want to tell you that Charles Coulson wrote a lot of books, and some of those books are some of the most impacting books that I've ever read in my life. He became a really awesome, great man of God. So, I leave you with this. What do you, on a personal level, and as you look inside of your heart, inside of your life today, is there an area in your life where you say, I'm ambitious and I'm might be going off in the wrong direction. I'm ambitious. I have great dreams, desires, hopes. God puts all those things in our heart. That's a good thing. But I might be in the danger zone right now. 
I might be doing something that's not good. So let's just for a moment, let's bow our heads. And let's talk and think about good ambition and bad ambition. Father, it's so easy to just lose our way. God, it's so easy to to start off the right way and then slowly begin to veer off and and just kind of lose ourselves. And, you know, at first it was so innocent, it was so right. We were going to be do better and we were going to be helping and we were going to make a difference and on and on it went. But somewhere along the way, we begin to compromise ourselves. We begin to lose ourselves. We begin to sell out. Lord, if that's where any of us find ourselves this morning, help us to get honest with ourselves. Help us to know that you are a God of grace and forgiveness and love. And you would love nothing more this morning for your children, one of us, maybe several of us, to come back your direction. Come back to receive your forgiveness, to get back on the right path, to do it the right way. Yeah, ambition's good, but to do it the right way. God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning who doesn't know you, they've so lost their way, they're no longer connected to you, and, and they've lost their relationship with you. I pray that this morning they would open up their heart like I did all those years ago and you helped me so much. Oh, life would have been pretty disastrous apart from you, Lord. Help us this morning. Help us to come back to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.